This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about the three-body problem, not the physics slash astro <laughs> problem, but a little bit about that because we're going to talk about a book that is also a little bit about that, but is not actually a physics book. It's a science book, <laughs> science fiction book. We'll get there. So physicians, physicians, physicists get a little <laughs> excited, get a little excited, but not a lot excited. But sci-fi people get really excited. This is a book that we originally planned to talk about during our globalization season, season four, which was a very, 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 very long time ago at this point. That Especially was, in internet years. Yeah, that was the spring of 2016, which might as well be last decade at this point. We didn't get to it because both of us were too busy that semester to read a reasonably long science fiction novel in the middle of the semester. But since then, we both finished advanced degrees and moved across the country. And now we're both in the mountain time zone instead of the eastern time zone. And, well, Stephen's getting his audio worked out, and I'm in a temporary office that sounds a bit echoey. And we're just going to roll with it because, well, we wanted to get an episode out. That's right. So soon and very soon, Chris will be in a real office with a recording setup. I will be in a real office with a recording setup. I'm in the middle of setting it up now. It's going to be Hooray. amazing. It's going to be great. Until then, you are long suffering and we love you. So, tis true. The three body problem. The three body problem is almost undeniably the most read science fiction book in China. It was written in Chinese and translated to English. And so there's a big movie coming out in China of this <laughs> book. And also there's a considerable amount of fan music scoring this book in China. So this is maybe not like the Star Wars of China, but it's got some pretty serious cred in China backing it up. It's like if Star Wars had started out as a book that got to be as popular as Star Wars was, and then they made a movie out of it. It's something it's, like that. It's a big deal. And what's interesting is we know we know about it by way of the translation, which is a few years old now and isn't, as far as I can tell, I, I don't speak any Chinese, but as far as the English went, it is an excellent translation. I really enjoyed reading this book. I did too. And it is also. Uh, if Star Wars had like actual attempts at science. Now, they're sort of sci-fi attempts at science, and so there's some moments that are like, yeah, I don't think that's how that works, but it's a good <laughs> story. And so um, let's just jump right into it. So The Three-Body Problem is a sci-fi book. It's clearly set in China, um, and it is a uh, essentially a first contact novel. It is about um, the ways that people think about and respond to uh, the nature of first contact. The thing that makes it interesting is that given an American culture, you would have a set of responses that you would probably imagine as the reactions to first contact um, in popular culture, particularly if you've seen any of the movies that have been written about this or any <laughs> of the, the books that have been written about it, which are myriad, 
And the reactions that are given by the characters in this book are not quite that. They're different. One of the things that's fascinating about this is it's, like all science fiction, really about the culture it's written in. One of the things that science fiction does really, really well is provide a kind of mirror on the culture from which it is written. That goes back to the earliest days of science fiction. And really, it has been the realm of fantastical storytelling for as long as humans have been telling stories. When people were telling stories that they knew to be fantastical about the doings of the gods in certain kinds of epic poetry in ancient Greece, they were doing this same kind of thing. And there there are some differences there, uh, but there are also a lot of points of continuity there. When people wrote throughout the Middle Ages, fantasies, if you, if you look at things like Dante's Inferno, this is clearly a fantasy, but it's a fantasy pointing at the surrounding culture. And we as Americans and Stephen and I as out-and-out nerds are quite familiar with lots of American fantasy and sci-fi. And in many ways, it's not that we cannot be surprised by really excellent fantasy or sci-fi, but the things that they poke at and prod at are the things of our culture to poke and prod at. And, well, cultures, as we talked about back in season four, vary enormously. And so when this book starts poking and prodding at culture in interesting ways. Sometimes I'm sure a good deal of it just flew past me. And a lot of it I picked up by way of inference or by trying to fit pieces together. The book actually opens in the middle of the cultural revolution of the 1970s. And there are a few footnotes from the translator to help American audiences understand some of what was going on, because that's just not something we yeah. know much about. We kind of know that it happened, but we don't have much sense of what it was like from the inside. This book just assumes it. It's background. You're supposed to make a specific conclusion that probably would be pretty obvious to people who are Chinese, <laughs> but that to Americans is not obvious at all, at least right. to you know Chris and I. And one of the ways we know that is because the section which this is the only section that you need uh, significant Chinese background mm-hmm. to understand. Although the inferences, that, like Chris mentioned, that you make throughout the book are sometimes helpful along my footnotes. <laughs> In this specific section, they want you to come to a pretty specific conclusion about a character that would seem to be relatively obvious to a Chinese person, but to an American, it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense until you get to a couple footnotes And then you're like, oh, right, that makes (laughs) a lot more sense. I totally understand now. And so that's just one way that the sort of globalization of it works, which is that, you know, there's definitely some things where the the narrator, um, who is American, had to point out from his American context, okay, knowing the Chinese context and the American context, this is what the the Americans are not going to get here. And it's a pretty significant emotional part of the book. So it's pretty critical that you get what's happening here. Stephen said narrator. He meant translator, but yeah. I meant translator. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But when when it's the footnotes, it's kind of like the narrator, right? It it is. Yeah. It's narratorial voice. Kind of like, hey, man, you should check this out because... (laughs) So it is a translator for sure, but there is an element where... 
the footnotes act as a narrator and sort of a guide through this cultural bit. So beyond that, there are two main twists that happen in the book, I would say. Spoiler horn. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what they are, um, but I am going to say that one of them, if you've read American sci-fi for a long time, the twist happens and you're like, oh, wait, I already that's what was happening. Like I already knew. Obviously. Was was that surprising? And then there's a second twist that is sort of understated as a long-time reader of sci-fi. It's like, that never happens. Oh my (laughs) gosh. Like what happens for the rest of the story now? Like, I don't even know what's going to happen, but you know, it was so understated that this may be some somewhat of a convention in Chinese fiction or something like that. But it was, it was just this moment where I, I literally put it down as like, okay, so I don't know what happens now. The end of the story is a mystery to me, <laughs> <laughs> which is completely unusual. Right, because you usually have a sense if you're a genre-savvy reader who has consumed enough sci-fi or fantasy. Okay, this is probably the rough direction this is going. And you retain the ability to be surprised by the details or the particulars. But I'm in the middle of reading a 1,200-page long Brandon Sanderson novel that just came out. And there are lots of details in it that surprise me. But I will be very surprised if at any point I am very surprised in this book. I have an idea how the beats tend to go and what what kinds of things are likely to happen. Will I know exactly the ending? No, but different cultures have those different generic beats. Well, and also Brandon Sanderson has some generic beats on top of true (laughs) on top of fantasy and science fiction beats, which is not to malign his work or character in any way because it is good stuff. But if you've read enough Brandon Sanderson you know, you're reading you have some idea what you're in for. Yeah, you're reading because you like it. <laughs> it's not like reading a Neil Stevenson book where you're like, I <laughs> have no idea what's about to happen to me. Let's go. <laughs> One of the things that caught my attention about this book as very different from how modern American science fiction is written in particular. And I heard another podcast There's an episode of The Incomparable, which talked about this, which we'll link in the show notes. But the way that characterization was done in this book was dramatically different from the way characterization tends to be done in, again, especially modern American fantasy or science fiction, where there's a lot more emphasis on character emotional arcs, on relationships, etc. Relationships are a factor in this book, but they're a factor in a very, very different way that I'm used to seeing. Yeah, uh, The guy who is the lead character in this book has a wife and children. Not really relevant. But you would barely know it from the text. <laughs> it's really odd from the perspective of an American reader where this character having a wife and children would normally be a really significant factor in the way he makes decisions and who he talks to as he's thinking through things and their background and background in the same way that furniture is a background. They're just kind of there and as set pieces in a couple places and they don't move the story in the ways that I might've expected. I wouldn't say furniture. What I would say is because I mean, I've read some books where there were characters that were furniture, and <laughs> that's big, right. But I wouldn't say that. I would say that this story is a story that literally does not involve those characters. Right. Like, 
this story is about a person doing a thing. That's a better way to put it. Yeah. And these other people are just like not involved. And maybe that has some cultural aspects to it that, you know, Chinese people's lives have different emotional uh, tendencies. Or maybe it's just a a personality of this particular author that he's like, these people are real and they exist, but like they don't play into the story really. That's not how the story works. But again, even if it's either of those, that's different than in, uh, you know, sort of American sci-fi where, you know, all available characters will be pulled into the narrative at any available point. (laughs) Right. And the thing that's interesting there is that particularly caught my attention as I was thinking about this as an exercise in cross-cultural sharing of art is the question of how much you can and can't infer about another culture from especially just one artifact. Because... If you tried to understand the ways that humans approach relationships, and particularly the way that Americans approach relationships from the work of Isaac Asimov. That would be pretty bad. You would not get a good idea of what Americans were actually like in the 1950s, because that just wasn't the kind of story Isaac Asimov specifically was interested in telling. Although you can draw some inferences from something like Ender's Game. Right. So there's there's some stuff in there in sort of the similar way where, you know, the the Valentine and Peter subplot is almost directly a commentary on American media. And so, Mm -hmm. like, there are some things that you can infer, but it almost takes a person of that culture to be able to infer the commentary. Right. Right. Like, you need to be aware that, like, that's not actually how we do things to kind of understand that this is what he thinks should happen or should not happen. And so the the inference sort of needs insider information to work as an inference. That's one of the dumbest sentences ever. (laughs) (laughs) To put it away, we've put it for a very long time on this show. Context matters. And one of the things that's interesting about this is that context matters for interpretation and reception of books and art. And we're not saying anything novel in saying that by a long shot. Novel was not a pun for any listeners out there. That was... Now it is. It's fun. (laughs) Call it out. No. It works. But the ways that we understand and the ways that we are capable of inferring about the culture in which a a piece of art or whatever else is written are very limited by what we know of and not even just what, what we know in an intellectual sense, but what we know experientially of that culture. Because I could describe to you all day long the particular dynamics of American media that Orson Scott Card was thinking about and trying to call out in 1989. But if you didn't live through some of that or you don't have the particular American media context, all the intellectual explanation in the world might help you say, oh, okay, that's what he's that's what he's doing. Here's probably what I should infer. But it kind of feels like those footnotes. It's not the kind of thing that you can just read organically and snicker at or snort at or gasp at or whatever your natural emotional reaction would be because you are situated in this context for reception. Right. Now, what's interesting is that we spent a lot of time talking about the nature of how the context, the culture in, informs this book. But other than the first bit and then some of the inferences late in the book, late in the book, a lot of it you don't really need to know much to kind of enjoy it. Mm -hmm. There's a protagonist. There's a mystery. There's 
uh, some really creative sci-fi stuff. There's some science-y stuff. It, it all feels relatively coherent to what an American would expect sci-fi to look like. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing that's a point of interest is that, yeah, there are some differences, but there's also a lot of similarities in that, especially past the... Um, so the book is set in, in different time periods. Uh, and when you're talking about the present day, a lot of the stuff that's happening in the present day is, is you know, similar Pretty to... Pretty normal to us. Yeah, similar to what's going on in my life right now. Like There's some video games. There's um, doing work in a university. There's, there's some talking to people that you know and then making some connections with these other people. and It's just all very similar. And so... Uh, it's very interesting that, yes, there are some pointed differences, but there's also a lot that's the same. And if you don't know anything about China at all, which sadly many Americans don't, um, you know, and I definitely didn't have much more than, you know, what I remembered of AP history in terms of background on the specific cultural and historical events of this period that is being mentioned, you can still get it and really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's worth noting, although I would probably say that's why it's not a gigantic bestseller here, is that it does require some of that context and historical uh, stuff to get the beginning and the ending. Right. One of the things that I enjoyed about it is that all of those interesting cu- cultural nuances, notwithstanding, notwithstanding isn't even the right word there. Even even being able to set those aside a little, though, I was just able to enjoy it as a really interesting sci-fi novel about first contact oh, yeah. that drew on a lot of contemporary ideas about simulation and video games and what first contact might look like. And in a very and different – Yes, wacky physics indeed. And in fact, the three-body problem tells you some of the kinds of things involved. There's – it's not particularly spoilery, I think, to say that some of the things in the game revolve around the idea of a solar system with a three-body problem in it affecting how things play out. I, I think that's actually in the title. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is where this book is going. Yeah, yeah. So when we got news late last year or early this year, I can't recall which at this point, about the trappist system with its seven planets three of them in a potentially habitable zone many of them visible at a scale probably larger than that of the moon in the earth's sky from each other's skies where there could in principle be living things i thought of this book because of course i thought of this book at that point there's obvious resonances there what would it be like to exist on a planet where you can see seven, six other worlds whirling around you and those affecting your climate and everything else. There's some interesting questions there. And this book does a fantastic job of thinking about kind of the cultural implications of those questions, not just the interesting science, but what kinds of effects might it have on a civilization growing in that kind of scenario and what might then happen when you had first contact established with them where will it go from there i haven't gotten around to reading the sequels yet but i kind of want to because it did its job effectively in that regard yeah i also have no idea where the sequels would go so that's another thing totally weird what's interesting is that some of the emotional kind of core of the book 
grapples with uh, essentially the problem of evil. Um, mm-hmm. Why are people bad? Um, and what do we do about that? And this is the sort of thing that science fiction grappled with in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, sort of trying to work its way through the nuances of morality. And since then, basically since Star Wars um, in the late 70s, a lot of the sci-fi that we get is either way out on the nihilistic end of things where they've just like dispensed with all grappling with morality or basically Star Warsian like dichotomies of good and evil. There are still good sci-fi and fantasy novels that grapple with some of the, the shadings in there, but largely American sci-fi and fantasy rushes to, to poles because a lot of that territory has been mapped, right? There's a lot of, of work that's already done that you don't want to copy. Um, right. And so dispensing with some of the more, more obvious or more pressing kind of moral issues is not really where a lot of sci-fi goes. Now, there's definitely stuff working on the fringes, like since William Gibson and Neuromancer, there's been plenty of work <laughs> that investigates simulations and uh, cyber matrix and these sorts of enmeshed artificial intelligence ideas. And that is still definitely a very wide and active and open place that there is some of that morality stuff playing out. But uh, that's not what's going on here. Like this is just people trying to figure out why people are bad and what to do about that. Yeah. When you see explorations of this in the American context now, they tend to look more like what you see in the novel Ancillary Justice, which I read last year which sets you up with a character who is the embodied mind of a starship whose starship has gotten lost walking around in a human body that seems it's complicated it's very complicated it was a fascinating book there was a lot of grappling with the nature of morality of what makes things good and evil what makes things people etc and those are a lot of the questions that are at the fore in american sci-fi right now does someone ever say, bro, you're a starship and like just disregard <laughs> all of like, I feel like that might be one of my initial reactions, unfortunately. Looks like a human. Can't really tell in a lot of cases. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you're right. That's part of where the morality is, is kind of centered. And so it's interesting to see from a different cultural context, the same questions of of good and evil and the problem of evil and why do humans do bad things and what do we do about the fact that people do bad things and seem to have a tendency to repeatedly do bad things. And right. that's, I, I think that's a question that every culture answers in its own way. Um, and every religion and every sort of group of, of thinkers, philosophers, thought streams answers in its own way. And so that's another thing that's interesting to see from this Chinese perspective is that, you know, my sometimes my response to some of the things that are posited in the book was, you know, to run to the answer that I have. But a lot of the time, I just kind of watch the characters work it out on their own. One of the things this made me want is a lot more translations of Chinese and in general, non-American, non-English speaking novels to be available to me because yeah. I would be really interested to read a dozen more 
really good Chinese science fiction and fantasy novels and see what other questions are they asking? What other answers are they offering? What are the particular angles on these big questions that they're bringing? Is this one representative? Is it not? And the same thing with India or anywhere else you can name that is not an American English speaking context, first of all, because we are very much all of us, both in good ways and in bad, limited in perspective to our own culture. And it can be really fascinating and really interesting and really in a helpful way, eye opening to hear others' perspectives. Eye-opening to hear is a strange conflation of terms, but listeners will take my meaning, I'm sure. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think it's particularly uh, valuable. America has often been criticized for not just direct imperialism, but cultural imperialism of mm-hmm. sending out all of our cultural ideas and not really taking very much back, uh, right. which is definitely... Uh, a acceptable criticism. I think that's sort of, sort of a, a low bar to hop. And so, uh, I think it is a valuable thing to start to have more of this. And there's definitely been some inroads. So, anime is a big area where mm-hmm. there's definitely been some some motion from a different culture towards American culture, um, and how that affects a lot of things, not just cartoons um, or movies. Right. Um, manga as well and how it affects comics and these sorts of things. So there have been some areas where uh, in popular culture, we've started to see more of a actual cultural exchange, but yeah, there's definitely some areas where there's, there's things that I would love to know about. And right. Japan is way more than just a few things that we know about it. And China <laughs> is way more than this book. And so I would love to get more of that. And so one, props to Tor, the publisher Tor, right. for taking on the translation of this particular book. Secondly, props to Kickstarter for allowing lots of other countries to kickstart projects on their platform. That's another way I think that in the future we'll start to, as Americans, be able to see more projects, and especially cutting-edge projects out there in the world, be more available to us. Um, and thirdly, I think that there's still not a very good recognition by large media companies who seem to be impervious to getting killed, despite everyone's discussions to the contrary for the last 30-ish years, uh, that they need to bring stuff in as much as they need to send stuff out. No one likes licensing agreements. I get that. But you should still <laughs> do that if the stuff is really good. Uh, you know, things like Howl's Moving Castle and um, the whole stream of movies from that director whose name I butcher every time I try to say it, that's a great example of acknowledging, hey, this was not made in a context that we're familiar with culturally or production-wise, but it's still really valuable. And things like Spirited Away are, in their own way, American kind of touchstones now in some contexts because the acknowledgement that you can bring this over, it's good, it will be accepted and appreciated, and it will, quote, make money is is a, is a right thing. And so if you know of some of those other ones, you should shoot them our way because we would love to have more of those touch points and perhaps we'll be able to talk about them on the show. And I'll be spending all of next year reading science fiction. So <laughs> if there's any sci-fi from other countries, let me know. The 
song at the beginning of the episode was Warm by Speakman Sound featuring Frankie Foreman. Thanks for uh, to the band for letting us use it. We ask permission. Please don't use it without permission. If you enjoy Winning Slowly, please let other people know about it. Word of mouth is awesome, as are social media shares and reviews in iTunes or other podcast directories, or you could burn the collection of all Winning Slowly episodes onto CD and mail them to unsuspecting friends. That's true. Seriously, if someone does that, I want to know about it. Even if you do that with just one episode, I want to know about it. Uh, we We would be really interested in that. Also, we would be really interested if you decided to support us via uh, Patreon or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. We give 10% of what we get to the Internet Archives so that the Internet will stay around. Along those lines, thanks to Andrew Fallows for sponsoring the show this month. If you'd like to suggest show ideas or to comment on existing episodes, you can email us at hello at winningslowly.org. We get a really lovely email that way from listener Jake just a little while back. Thank you so much for that. We're looking forward to tackling some of the ideas that were sent our way in that email in the upcoming season. We do also yep. keep an eye on Twitter at Winning Slowly and on our Facebook page, though we interact there much less regularly than we do if people just send us an email. So email us yep and as always thanks for listening